Part two of Tale four of Five Tales by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Wales. Filing into the jury box next morning, Mr. Bosengate collided slightly with a short juryman whose square figure and square head of stiff yellow-red hair he had only vaguely noticed the day before. The man looked angry, and Mr. Bosengate thought, an ill-bred dog, that. He sat down quickly, and to avoid further recognition of his fellows, gazed in front of him. His appearance on Saturdays was always military, by reason of the route march of his volunteer corps in the afternoon. Gentleman Fox, who belonged to the corps, too, was also looking square, but that commercial traveller on his other side seemed more louche, and as if surprised in immorality than ever. Only the proximity of Gentleman Fox on the other side kept Mr. Bosengate from shrinking. Then he saw the prisoner being brought in, shadowy and dark, behind the brightness of his buttons, and he experienced a sort of shock. This figure was so exactly that which had several times started up in his mind. Somehow he had expected a fresh sight of the fellow to dispel and disprove what had been haunting him, had expected to find him just an outside phenomenon, not, as it were, a part of his own life, and he gazed at the carven immobility of the judge's face, trying to steady himself, as a drunken man will, by looking at a light. The regimental doctor, unabashed by the judge's comment on his absence the day before, gave his evidence like a man who had better things to do, and the case for the prosecution was forthwith rounded in by a little speech from counsel. The matter, he said, was clear as daylight. Those who wore His Majesty's uniform, charged with the responsibility and privilege of defending their country, were no more entitled to desert their regiments by taking their own lives than they were entitled to desert it in any other way. He asked for a conviction. Mr. Bosengate felt a sympathetic shuffle passing through all feet. The judge was speaking. Prisoner, you can either go into the witness-box and make your statement on oath, in which case you may be cross-examined on it, or you may make your statement there from the dock, in which case you will not be cross-examined. Which do you elect to do? From here, my lord. Seeing him now full face, and, as it might be, come to life in the effort to convey his feelings, Mr. Bosengate had suddenly a quite different impression of the fellow. It, it was as if his khaki had fallen off, and he had stepped out of his own shadow, a live and quivering creature. His pinched, clean-shaven face seemed to have an irregular, wilder, hairier look, his large, nervous brown eyes darkened and glowed. He jerked his shoulders, his arms, his whole body, like a man suddenly freed from cramp or a suit of armor. He spoke, too, in a quick, crisp, rather high voice, pinching his consonants a little, sharpening his vowels like a true Welshman. My lord and misters the jury, he said, I was a hairdresser when the call came on me to join the army. 
I had a little home and a wife. I never thought what it would be like to be away from them, I surely never did. And I'm ashamed to be speaking it out like this. How it can squeeze and squeeze a man, how it can prey on your mind when you're nervous like I am. Tis not every one that cares for his home. There's lots of them never wants to see their wives again. But for me, tis like being shut up in a cage, it is. Mr. Bosengate saw daylight between the skinny fingers of the man's hands thrown out with a jerk. I cannot bear it shut up away from wife and home like what you are in the army. So when I took my razor that morning, I, I was wild, and I wouldn't be here now but for that man catching my hand. There was no reason in it. I'm willing to confess that. It was foolish. But wait till you get feeling like what I was, and see how it draws you. Misters the jury, don't send me back to prison. It is worse still there. If you have wives, you will know what it is like for lots of us. Only some is more nervous than others. I swear to you, sirs, I could not help it. Again the little man flung out his hand, his whole thin body shook, and Mr. Bosengate felt the same sensation as when he drove his car over a dog. Misters, the jury, I hope you may never in your lives feel as I've been feeling. The little man ceased, his eyes shrank back into their sockets, his figure back into its mask of shadowy brown and gleaming buttons and Mr. Bosengate was conscious that the judge was making a series of remarks, and very soon of being seated at a mahogany table in the jury's withdrawing-room, hearing the voice of the man with hair like an Irish terrier saying, Didn't he talk through his hat, that little blighter? Conscious, too, of the commercial traveller, still on his left, always on his left, mopping his brow and muttering, Phew! It's hot in here today, while an effluvium as of an inside accustomed to whiskey came from him. Then the man with the underlip and the three plastered whips of hair said, "Don't know why we withdrew, Mister Foreman." Mister Bosengate looked around to where, at the head of the table, Gentleman Fox sat in defensive gentility and the little white piping to his waistcoat, saying blandly. I shall be happy to take the sense of the jury. There was a short silence. Then the chemist murmured, I should say he must have what they call claustrophobia. Cluster fiddlesticks. The feller's a shirker, that's all. Missed his wife. Pretty excuse. Indecent, I call it. The speaker was the little wire-haired man and emotion deep and angry stirred in Mr. Bosengate. That ill-bred little cur! He gripped the edge of the table with both hands. I think it's damned natural, he muttered. But almost before the words had left his lips, he felt dismay. What had he said? He, nearly a colonel of volunteers, endorsing such a want of patriotism, and hearing the commercial traveller mur murmuring, "'Ear! Ear!' he reddened violently. The wire-headed man said roughly, "'There's too many of these blighted shirkers, and too much pampering of them.' The turmoil in Mr. Bosengate increased. 
he remarked in an icy voice, I agree to no verdict that'll send the man back to prison. At this a real tremor seemed to go round the table, as if they all saw themselves sitting there through lunchtime. Then the large grey-haired man, given to winking, said, Oh, come, sir, after what the judge said, come, sir, what do you say, Mr. Foreman? Gentleman Fox, as who should say, this is excellent value, but I don't want to press it on you, answered, we are only concerned with the facts. Did he, or did he not, try to shorten his life? Of course he did. Said so himself. Mr. Bosengate heard the wire-haired man snap out, and from the following murmur of assent, he alone abstained. Guilty. Well, yes. There was no way out of admitting that. But his feelings revolted against handing that poor little beggar over to the tender mercy of his country's law. His whole soul rose in arms against agreeing with that ill-bred little cur and the rest of this job-lot. He had an impulse to get up and walk out, saying, Settle it your own way. Good morning. It seems, sir, Gentleman Fox was saying, that we're all agreed to guilty except yourself. If you will allow me, I don't see how you can go behind what the prisoner himself admitted. Thus brought up to the very guns, Mr. Bosengate, red in the face, thrust his hands deep into the side pockets of his tunic, and staring straight before him, said, Very well. On condition we recommend him to mercy. What do you say, gentlemen? Shall we recommend him to mercy? Air, air! burst from the commercial traveller, and from the chemist came the murmur, No harm in that. Well, I think there is. They shoot deserters at the front, and we let this fellow off. I'd hang the cur. Mr. Bosengate stared at that little wire-haired brute. Haven't you any feeling for others, he wanted to say? Can't you see that this poor devil suffers tortures? but the sheer impossibility of doing this before ten other men brought a slight sweat out on his face and hands, and in agitation he smote the table a blow with his fist. The effect was instantaneous. Everybody looked at the wire-haired man as if saying, Yes, you've gone a bit too far there. The little brute stood it for a moment, then muttered surlily, Well, Commend him to mercy, if you like. I don't care. That's right. They never pay any attention to it, said the grey-haired man, winking heartily, and Mr. Bosengate filed back with the others into court. But when from the jury-box his eyes fell once more on the hare-eyed figure on in the dock, he had his worst moment yet. Why should this poor wretch suffer so? For no fault, no fault while he, and these others, and that snapping counsel, and the Caesar-like judge up there, went off to their women and their homes, blithe as bees, and probably never thought of him again. And suddenly he was conscious of the judge's voice. You will go back to your regiment, and endeavor to serve your country with better spirit. 
You may thank the jury that you are not sent to prison, and your good fortune that you were not at the front when you tried to commit this cowardly act. You are lucky to be alive. A policeman pulled the little soldier by the arm. His drab figure, with eyes fixed and lusterless, passed down and away. From his very soul Mr. Bosengate wanted to lean out and say, Cheer up! Cheer up! I understand! It was nearly ten o'clock that evening before he reached home, motoring back from the route march. His physical tiredness was abated, for he had partaken of a snack and a whisky and soda at the hotel. But mentally he was in a curious mood. His body felt appeased, his spirit hungry. Tonight he had a yearning, not for his wife's kisses, but for her understanding. He wanted to go to her and say, I've learnt a lot today, found out things I never thought of. Life's a wonderful thing, Kate, a thing one can't live all to oneself, a thing one shares with everybody, so that when another suffers, one suffers too. It's come to me that what one has doesn't matter a bit, it's what one does and how one sympathizes with other people. It came to me in the most extraordinary vivid way when I was on that jury, watching that poor little rat of a soldier in his trap. It's the first time I've ever felt the, the spirit of Christ, you know. It's a wonderful thing, Kate, wonderful. We haven't been close, really close, you and I, so that we each understand what the other is feeling. It's all in that, you know, understanding, sympathy. It's priceless. When I saw that poor little devil taken down and sent back to his regiment to begin his sorrows all over again, wanting his wife, thinking and thinking of her just as you know I would be thinking and wanting you, I felt what an awful outside sort of life we lead, never telling each other what we really think and feel, never being really close. I dare say that little chap and his wife keep nothing from each other, live each other's lives. That's what we ought to do. Let's get to feeling that what really matters is understanding and loving, and not only just saying it, as we all do, those fellows on the jury, and even that poor devil of a judge, what an awful life judging one's fellow creatures. When I left that poor little Tommy this morning, and ever since, I've longed to get back here quietly to you and tell you about it, and make a beginning. There's something wonderful in this, and I want you to feel it as I do, because you mean such a lot to me. This was what he wanted to say to his wife, not touching or kissing her, just looking into her eyes, watching them soften and glow as they surely must, and catching the infection of his new ardor. And he felt unsteady, fearfully unsteady, with the desire to say it all as it should be said, swiftly, quietly, with the truth and fervor of his feelings. The hall was not lit up, for daylight still lingered under the new arrangement. 
He went towards the drawing room, but from the very door shied off to his study, and stood irresolute under the picture of a man catching a flea, Dutch school, which had come down to him from his father. The governess would be in there with his wife. He must wait. Essential to go straight to Kathleen and pour it all out, or he would never do it. He felt as nervous as an undergraduate going in for his viva voce. This thing was so big, so astoundingly and unexpectedly important. He was suddenly afraid of his wife, afraid of her coolness and her grace, and that something Japanese about her, of all those attributes he had been accustomed to admire most, afraid, as it were, of her attraction. He felt young tonight, almost boyish. Would she see that he was not really fifteen years older than herself, and she not really a part of his collection, of all the admirable appointments of his home, but a companion spirit to one who wanted a companion badly? In this agitation of his soul, he could keep still no more than he could last night in the agitation of his senses, and he wandered into the dining-room. A dainty supper was set out there, sandwiches and cake, whiskey and the cigarettes, even an early peach. Mr. Bosengate looked at this peach with sorrow rather than disgust. The perfection of it was of a piece with all that had gone before this new and sudden feeling. Its delicious bloom seemed to heighten his perception of the hedge around him that hedge of the things he so enjoyed, carefully planted and tended these many years. He passed it by uneaten and went to the window. Out there all was darkening, the fountain, the lime-tree, the flower-beds, and the fields below, with the Jersey cows who would come to your call. Darkening slowly, losing form, blurring into soft blackness, vanishing, but there, none the less, all there, the hedge of his possessions. He heard the door of the dining-room open, the voices of his wife and the governess in the hall, going up to bed. If only they didn't look in here, if only. The voices ceased. He was safe now, had but to follow in a few minutes to make sure of Kathleen alone. He turned round and stared down the length of the dark dining-room, over the rosewood table, to where in the mirror above the sideboard at the far end his figure bathed, a stain, a mere blurred shadow. He made his way down to it along the table-edge, and stood before himself as close as he could get. His throat and the roof of his mouth felt dry with nervousness. He put out his finger and touched his face in the glass. You're an ass, he thought. Pull yourself together and get over it. She will see. Of course she will. He swallowed, smoothed his moustache, and walked out. Going up the stairs, his heart beat painfully. But he was in for it now and marched straight into her room. 
Dressed only in a loose blue wrapper, she was brushing her dark hair before the glass. Mr. Bosengate went up to her and stood there silent, looking down. The words he had thought of were like a, a swarm of bees buzzing in his head, yet not one would fly from between his lips. His wife went on brushing her hair under the light which shone on her polished elbows. She looked up at him from beneath one lifted eyebrow. Well, dear? Tired? With a sort of vehemence the single word, no, passed out. A faint, a quizzical smile flitted over her face. She shrugged her shoulders ever so gently. That gesture, he had seen it before, and in desperate desire to make her understand, he put his hand on her uplifted arm. Kathleen, stop! Listen to me! His fingers tightened in his agitation and eagerness to make his great discovery known. But before he could get out a word, he became conscious of that cool, round arm, conscious of her eyes half-closed, sliding round at him, of her half-smiling lips, of her neck under the wrapper. And he stammered, I want, I, I, I must, Kathleen, I, I... She lifted her shoulders again in that little shrug. Yet, yes, I know, all right. A wave of heat and shame, and of God knows what, came over Mr. Bosengate. He fell on his knees and pressed his forehead to her arm, and he was silent, more silent than the grave. Nothing, nothing came from him but two long sighs. Suddenly he felt her hand stroke his cheek. Compassionately, it seemed to him. She made a little movement towards him. Her lips met his, and he remembered nothing but that. In his own room, Mr. Bosengate sat at his wide open window smoking a cigarette. There was no light. Moths went past, the moon was creeping up. He sat very calm, puffing the smoke out into the night air. Curious thing, life. Curious world. Curious forces in it, making one do the opposite of what one wished. Always, always making one do the opposite, it seemed. The furtive light from that creeping moon was getting hold of things down there stealing in among the boughs of the trees. There's something ironical, he thought, which walks about. Things don't come off as you think they will. I meant, I tried, but one doesn't change like that all of a sudden, it seems. Fact is, life's too big a thing for one. All the same, I'm not the man I was yesterday, not quite. He closed his eyes, and in one of those flashes of vision which come when the senses are at rest, he saw himself, as it were, far down below, down on the floor of a street narrow as a grave, high as a mountain, a deep, dark slit of a street, walking down there, a black midget of a fellow, among other black midgets, his wife and the little soldier the judge, and those jury chaps, fantoches straight up on their tiny feet, 
wandering down there in that dark, infinitely tall and narrow street. Too much for one, he thought, too high for one, no getting on top of it. We've got to be kind and help one another and not expect too much and not think too much. That's all. And squeezing out his cigarette, he took six deep breaths of the night air and got into bed. End of part two. End of tale number four.